This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. This next story comes from a listener, and on June 14, 1777, Congress passed an act establishing a flag for our then-new nation. Since then, our American flag has been carried into countless battlefields, flown above the rubble of the World Trade Center after September 11th, and placed upon the moon. But it also takes a more personal role for so many of us. Today, Joy Neal Kidney, a regular contributor and listener on WHO in Des Moines, tells her story of why the flag means so much to her and her family. Here's Monty Montgomery with the story. It's easy for us to forget the meaning of things constantly around us. If you drive through Washington, D.C. over a summer, seeing the Pentagon, Jefferson Memorial, Capitol Building, and Washington Monument begins to just seem like a part of everyday life. They're just there, and the splendor adorning them simply vanishes in the midst of a busy rush hour commute to Arlington where our national heroes are buried. Adorning their graves is another symbol of our great country that we can often forget the importance of to so many people, the American flag. Joy Neal Kidney's family is a group of some of those people who don't forget its meaning, though. Here's Joy, author of Leora's Letters, with more on what the flag of our nation means to her and her family. The American flag was precious to my grandmother, who often wore a small, sparkly, red, white, and blue flag-shaped pin. In one of my favorite pictures of her, she's standing below a flag and grinning. Back in 1890, when Leora Goff was born in Guthrie County, Iowa, the new states of Idaho and Wyoming had just been added to the Union making 44 stars in the flag. She was five years old when Utah became a state, adding the 45th star. That was the same year her father went bankrupt in Nebraska's drought. Leora was nearly 17 when Oklahoma was admitted to the Union, 46 stars. They lived in rural Audubon County then, and she rode a horse to the county seat town to take piano lessons. She helped her dad with his popcorn crop and her mother with 10 younger siblings. The 48-star flag came about when New Mexico and Arizona became states right before the Titanic sank in 1912. Leora was 21 then, living in Wichita, Iowa, not yet married. It was that familiar 48-star flag for the next 33 years. Through Leora's marriage to Clay Wilson, the Great War, the births of their 10 children, the loss of three as infants, and through World War II when they lost three sons. Leora regularly displayed the flag outside her little house in Guthrie Center, where she lived out her last decades 
Her family had sacrificed so much for that emblem of the nation. When Japan officially surrendered at the end of World War II, two sons were missing in action, Dale in New Guinea and Danny in Europe. Their youngest son was killed in training at the end of the war. A folded American flag was presented to Clayman Leora by Junior's Army Air Force friend and fellow pilot, Ralph Woods, at the funeral. The war was over. The Wilson's two surviving sons had served in the Navy. Delbert and his family moved home to be with his folks. Dale Wilson has never been found. They eventually learned that son Danny's grave had been located in Austria and that he had been killed in action the day he was listed as missing. Months later, a carton of Danny Wilson's possessions from his base in Italy arrived at the Wilson acreage south of Perry, sent from the Army Effects Bureau of the Kansas City Quartermaster Depot. Clabe signed for the carton. I suppose they opened it. But did they sort through their son's 18 pairs of socks, five cotton undershirts, three khaki trousers, and other clothing? If they had, they would have found Danny's wristwatch, souvenirs of his R&R to Rome over Christmas 1944, a fountain pen, and other items, including a small New Testament. The war was over, but life just plodded on and on with daily chores to keep them busy. According to Leora's diary, she churned butter every week. Two cows had calves. Clabe helped a neighbor with field work. At some point, maybe they thumbed through Danny's small New Testament. They would have found the page with the American flag on it. Under that flag is an arrow drawn in ink and these words in his usual bold handwriting with his signature. I give everything for the country it stands for. If this brings tears to my eyes these many decades later, how did my grandparents deal with it? It's no wonder the American flag was so precious to my grandmother. And a special thanks to Joy Neal Kidney for sharing her story, her mother's story, her grandmother's story, the family story, and in the end, the American story, because that's what the American flag represents, all of our stories. My own family had the same story. I have the flag now that my mom got from her mom. My mother's only brother was killed in World War II. John Lapadula was a paratrooper, landed behind the enemy lines, and was never heard from again. No effects, just a flag. And a special thanks also to WHO for carrying our show and for allowing these stories to happen again. If you have a story about anything, send them our way. We love hearing from listeners. Join Neil Kidney's story, her family's story, the American flag story, here on Our American Stories. stories and now we bring you a story from joshua texador you can listen to his entire story 
at our website, OurAmericanStories.com. It's a great one about overcoming hardship and taking responsibility for your life. Today, we bring you a piece of his story that begins after Josh decided to own up on an alcohol dependency, move to Nashville, get married, and take his own life into his own hands. I got to Nashville on a Sunday, and I had a job interview that Wednesday. It was working that following Monday. And then I've basically, you know, busted my ass ever since that day. And that was what we're talking uh, almost three years ago. So I interviewed for FedEx, uh, United Postal Service, an armor factory, and oh, UPS. I, I definitely went after the postal service because the, they're always hiring. So I knew I could get a job as soon as I got there from going to the post office. And I, oh my, I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. I hated it to the point where I said, I, I'm gonna make enough money, I will never ever have to do this ever again. Being a package handler, at a post office distribution center sucks. It is the worst job ever. And then, you know, yes, I was making $16 an hour. When I tell you, you're gonna, you're gonna work for every single penny. You're gonna earn every single penny from working um, as a package handler. And I was on one of the harder lines because they just see me, like, I'm not a small guy, so I was on one of the, the toughest lines at the, at the job site. So I was in charge of three and a half trucks. You got people who are responsible for like two trucks. I have three and a half trucks. And when our belt got crazy, cause there's like a, our belt, there was a top and a bottom. So you have like um, local packages and you have like, like a wet rail, I don't know, non-local packages, whatever. So when our local packages would fill up, I would have to stop loading my truck, go down on the bottom belt, and help them load that part just for me to go back to the top of the belt and start loading my trucks again. Because the volume was getting so crazy, we had, instead of going in at three in the morning, we were going in at two o'clock in the morning. So from two o'clock in the morning to like eight o'clock, I'm picking up boxes. No bathroom break, picking up boxes. And I'm just like, I would never, ever, 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 ever do this again. And it wasn't so much that you couldn't go to the bathroom. I just knew if I went to the bathroom and came back, I was gonna have to play catch up. So I would purposely just not go. go. But you know, go, I was like, I I can't do this anymore. And then I tried to get a manager job at Dunkin' Donuts, terrible. I was there for two days. I said, I'm good, I'm good. I'm not doing this anymore. So the fun is funny. I was in the post office and and I was doing Dunkin' Donuts at the same time for those two days. So when I left on the second day, the very next day, I went to um, FedEx. There's a security company there. It's called Allied Universal. So I started talking to them. I said, hey man, like, it's, how's that job? And they're like, yeah, it's good. You know, it's not bad. And I'm looking at them and they're getting paid and they're not really doing much of anything. So I said, man, I should just go out and <laughs> I should go out and, and do that. And that day, I applied for Allied Universal. The hiring process was great. I, well, for me, it was great. I think it's hysterical. Um, <laughs> the day, <laughs> the day of my interview. So in the paperwork, you know, uh, in the paperwork, in the application, it says, you know, you need to be clean shaven and, you know, you need to look presentable. So I went out, got a haircut. 
I had a full beard, cut the whole beard off. I was clean shaven. And, you know, in my mind, it's an interview. So I have, uh, you know, I got a button up shirt, a tie. I got khakis and shoes on. I go to the building, I get to the building, and I'm like, and I'm walking past the room that I'm supposed to go to, but in the room, there's like a bunch of people. So I'm like, am I, I was like, man, I'm in the wrong place. So a lady who's sitting at a desk, she's like, hey, what are you looking for? I'm like, I'm here to apply for, Ally, I'm here for the Allied interview. And she's like, oh, you're in the right place. Man, when I tell you I'm the only person dressed up, I'm the only person dressed up in the entire room. I'm laughing to myself, like, yo, <laughs> they cannot be serious right now. Like, who shows up like this for a job interview? I'm the only person dressed up. They had one girl in there with slippers, slippers. She had slippers on and uh, SpongeBob pajama pants for a job interview. I'm like, this girl's crazy. You know, and I, you know, I get hired like that day. And I guess from the way I presented myself and how I did my interview, um, I got a really good job site and I ended up getting, my job site was the Country Music Hall of Fame. It was, I don't want to say it was a, it was a learning curve. It was, it was like when I first got there, so remember, this is all new to me. This is, I think this is like the second or third month that I'm in Nashville, so I don't even know anybody. And, um, <laughs> I was gonna quit. I was gonna quit working um, security. And it wasn't so much that I didn't like the Country Music Hall of Fame. Um, the leadership at the Country Music Hall of Fame for security, I was like, man, this, this is not good. Like, it just seemed like people were just doing whatever they wanted. I was like, I, I don't know if I'm gonna make it here. But I remember, I'm determined, and pretty much like uh, they hired me as part-time there, but I ate up so many hours from people not showing up, and plus they have events. So I was, I was getting like 40 hours just off events and covering other people's shifts. And um, they end up, after three weeks of me really, you know, working hard, I got offered a supervisor position there, and I, and I took it. And I became the first shift supervisor. And you know, I definitely made some changes that weren't working. Cause I like, I like to do what works. I mean, people could say, hey, you know, we've done this forever. I'm like, yeah, but you know, what worked 10 years ago is not gonna work today. I mean, sometimes what happened last year is not gonna work today. So, you know, I, you have to adapt to what's going on. So I made some changes uh, myself and the actual uh, site uh, supervisor. You know, we made some real strong changes and you know, we were working on just building a better culture and a better relationship from a security standpoint with the client. And the client would be the Country Music Hall of Fame. And I 100% believe that we did that. And I end up, you know, becoming the actual site supervisor of the entire thing. And you know, uh, running a staff of over, uh, over 30 people, handling timesheets, uh, payroll, you know, handling all the scheduling. I think from my leadership there and from, you know, my hard work there, I've definitely built better relationships with the people at Allied Universal Security as well as the Country Music Hall of Fame. And like I said, reputation is everything, respect is everything, and I think I've earned my respect with people. And I think my reputation is very is is long standing with the people 
um, that I've had to work with through my experience there. I mean, more than anything, your work ethic has to, it has to shine through. I, I mean, I myself, I was a site supervisor, and I mean, I was doing 60, 70 hours a week, like, steady. And I'm, and I'm doing that, but I'm also making sure that the, my, I'm making sure that my other supervisors are taken care of. I'm making sure, like, the new people are getting their hours. Like, I didn't just take hours because I could just take all the hours. I will literally let everybody eat, and then I will pick up the crumbs but everybody was getting a piece. So everybody's happy, everybody's making money, everybody's comfortable. We changed the training at the Hall of Fame where it was more hands-on rather than how it was before. It was kind of like, you know, just figure it out, you know, and it was, I mean, it was, a, it was a really, really great experience for me to be there. And like, when I was a site supervisor, anybody who came in who didn't have a car, I made sure, I made sure. Like, I, we got a lot of young people like, you know, people fresh out of high school or people in college who didn't have cars. All those people who came who were like young people who didn't have cars, I made sure I, they all got cars. And that was like a big thing for me was at least helping young people, you know, get their accomplishments and at least pushing them along rather than saying, yeah, you work here, whatever, you know. So I actually take pride in that. And you've been listening to Josh Texador, and we were all wondering what would happen at Josh, because my goodness, he had grown up right before our eyes in the first story. And my goodness, we'll have to make a trip up to the Country Music Hall of Fame. He can give us a tour, and we can do some stories about some of the great storytellers in American history, because there are a few better than the ones who adorn those walls. Josh Texador's story, here on Our American Story. stories and our next story comes to us from a man who's simply known as the history guy his videos are watched by hundreds of thousands of people of all ages over on youtube the history guy is also heard here in our american stories the idea of a lawn well it's very old but it took a key technology to make lawns very common here's the history guy with the story of lawn care the word lawn is derived from the Middle English word lond, meaning a glade or opening in the woods. Lond then began to mean also a common area in a village where farmers could graze livestock, a place that may have looked something like a modern lawn, given the natural mowing and fertilizing. The idea of the shared laud, however, shows the difference in the understanding of a lawn at the time, as the spaces near houses were reserved for growing vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The original concept of a dwelling surrounded by grass likely came from medieval castles, which would have the area around them cleared of forest in order to provide a clear field of vision for defenders. 
The area thus cleared would then naturally fill in with grasses. There is documentary evidence of the use of deliberately cultivated turf grasses as early as the 12th century in England for bowling greens. The oldest known bowling green for target-style bowling to survive to modern times was built in 1299 in Southampton and is still used by the Southampton Bowling Club. The use of lawns was most likely originally popularized as a location for sports such as tennis and croquet courts and golf putting greens. Perhaps it was the association with castles, homes of the wealthier, perhaps it was simply as a landscaping element, but the idea of a lush, carefully cut, green grass lawn gained popularity in the latter half of the 17th century as part of the magnificent gardens of rich estates. The legendary landscape artist André Lenort used expanses of green grass called Tapis Verde in the magnificent gardens that he helped to design at places like the Chateau de Chantilly, London's Greenwich Park, and of course the magnificent gardens at Versailles. But at the time, the only way to keep your tapis verde cut short and smooth was with a scythe. Cutting grass evenly with a scythe was labor-intensive, and the cutting and sweeping required great skill and thus was very expensive, although even the wealthy made use of natural lawn mowing by grazing animals. But the practicality of lawns for common houses, the visceral desire for which some scientists claim may have been derived from ancient origins in Africa where expanses of low-lying turf grass allowed humans to be able to spot both prey and predators, can be credited to one Edwin Beard Budding. Born in 1796, Budding was a freelance engineer from Stroud, Gloucestershire. Working among the British textile industry, he invented several things, including making improvements on a carding machine, a machine that disentangles and processes fibers that can then be woven. Among the inventions for which he is given credit is the adjustable spanner. But his most influential patent was patent number 6081, granted August 31st, 1830, and described as a new combination and application of machinery for the purpose of cropping and shearing the vegetable surface of lawns, grass plots, and pleasure grounds. Budding got his idea from a cross-cutting device used in textile making that uses a cutting cylinder to trim the uneven nap from woolen cloth and give it a smooth finish. His device, which reportedly tested at night to protect the idea from being stolen, used a 19-inch frame made of wrought iron. The mower was pushed from behind. The rear roller drove gears to transfer the drive to the knives on the cutting cylinder, and there was an additional roller placed in between the cutting cylinder and the land roller, which was adjusted to alter the height of the cut. The grass clippings were thrown forward into a tray-like box. The patent description added, Country gentlemen may find in using my machine themselves an amusing, useful, and healthy exercise. Two of the first machines went to Regent's Park Zoological Gardens in London in the Oxford Colleges. Mr. Curtis, the foreman at Regent's Park, said of the machine, It does as much work as six or eight men with scythes and brooms, performing the whole so perfectly as not to leave a mark of any kind. Budding went into partnership with a local engineer and manufactured his device, selling around a thousand of his machines in the 1830s. The design would develop over time. Initially a handle was added to allow the motion of the machine to be assisted by someone pulling from the front. It took nearly a decade before there was a patent for a horse or pony pulled version, and versions that used chains rather than gears making the device lighter came out in the 1850s. By the end of the 19th century, there were the first steam and petrol driven versions. American agronomist Dr. James Beard, who was so much an expert on grass that he was referred to among crop scientists as the Pope of Turf Grass, noted that the development of home lawns, ironically a connection to the wild, has been intrinsically linked to prosperity and development. As he explained, basically turf grasses were developed by modern civilizations in order to enhance the quality of life of humans. The more technically advanced a civilization, the more widely turf grasses are used. 
the legendary American landscaper Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed New York's Central Park, designed suburbs where each house had a lawn in the 1850s. Strangely, it was the industrially manufactured lawn mower that was essential to the lawns that were the very symbol of the desire to escape the industrialized city. The lawn became indelibly a part of American culture because of developer William Jared Levitt's Levitt Towns. His seven large housing developments, made after World War II and designed for returning veterans and their families, became the model for suburban, and at the time almost purely Caucasian, living. The houses, built assembly line style so that they could be produced quickly and inexpensively, were very popular. The houses came with instructions to maintain perfect, weed-free lawns. The lawn was essential, he argued, to the charm and beauty of the individual home. Levitt's design so defined American living that Time magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. Grass lawns are so central to American life that a 2017 article in Scientific American described them as a physical manifestation of the American dream of home ownership. According to estimates based on NASA satellite imagery, today there are somewhere around 40 million acres of lawns in the continental United States, making turf grass the single largest irrigated crop in the country. American lawns take up three times as much space as irrigated corn. Fully 20% of the land area of the states of Massachusetts and New Jersey are covered in turf grass. According to a 2015 survey, American adults collectively spend more than 2.3 billion minutes and roughly $29.1 billion on lawn care and gardening annually. The average American homeowner will spend 150 hours a year on their lawn. And while 75% of the homeowners surveyed agreed that my lawn and garden are a reflection of my personality, there is a downside. A study of emergency room incidents determined that the U.S. averages 84,944 injuries from lawn mowers annually. And the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons determined that lawnmower accidents are the number one cause of amputations among children in the United States. There is some pushback, and there is a movement among some homeowners to reduce or eliminate lawns both out of environmental concerns and pure dislike for the chore. A CBS News poll in 2011 found that for one in five Americans, mowing the lawn was their least liked chore, ranked lower than raking leaves or shoveling snow. And the sentiments of this new anti-lawn movement might have been best expressed in a 2015 opinion piece published in the Chicago Tribune entitled, Commentary, Lawns are a soul-crushing time suck, and most of us would be better off without them. Still, lawns are overwhelmingly popular among homeowners in the United States, and not just the United States. In Australia, which has faced several droughts in recent years, lawns are so popular people have simply shifted to new drought-resistant strains. And there are alternatives available, both realistic fake grass for your lawn and remote-control robotic lawn mowers are transforming the very idea of lawn maintenance. And while lawns may have a distinguished history, their future might be even more interesting. And what great storytelling, the history of the lawn, and we thank the history guy for all that he does for us. And if you want more stories of forgotten history, more stories like this, please subscribe to his YouTube channel, The History Guy. History deserves to be remembered. And I can tell you this, I don't think doing the lawn is a soul-crushing time suck. And I took no greater happiness than driving around in my riding lawnmower and doing my lawn once a week. And my goodness, I'm with a lot of Americans. 2.3 billion minutes and $29 billion on lawn care 
150 hours a year because for so many of us, it gives us joy. It gives us peace. And in the end, there's nothing like a fresh cut lawn, the smell of it, the look of it, a little order out of disorder. That's what we're doing. And again, if you think it's a soul-crushing time suck, God bless you. But not most Americans, and not anytime soon, 84,000 injuries from lawnmowers. Hey, look, we know it, and we do it anyway. And the fact that we have 40 million acres of lawns, of turf grass, three times as much space as corn, tells you the love affair with the lawn here in America and around the world. The History Guy, the story of lawns and lawn care here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. Up next, another story on Hank Brown, one of the greatest and most humble statesmen of our era. Hank volunteered to serve in Vietnam, served in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, served as president of three different universities, including having unanimous bipartisan support to lead the University of Colorado out of a number of scandals. Hank is the interim president of the Daniels Fund, and our own Alex Cortez now brings us the story of his military service. Today, less than one-half of one percent of the U.S. population serves in the military on active duty, a smaller share than at any time since the peacetime era between World Wars I and II, which has led to a military-civilian divide that can be challenging. Hank Brown is a statesman who wore the uniform. I uh, was in grad school and found it boring to the point of <laughs> distraction, so I Joined the Navy, went through Officer's Candidate School in Newport, then volunteered for the UDT training, underwater demolition training. Unfortunately, my eyes weren't good enough. I was 20, 30 in one eye. So when I got turned down for that, I applied for flight training. You could, with correctable vision, you could become a navigator. Got into a VR squadron, and uh, when Lyndon Johnson asked for volunteers for Vietnam to serve in Vietnam, I remember it was a Thursday afternoon. He was on television, I was in the ready room working on some paperwork and he came on television and asked for volunteers and I went and uh, called my detailer in the Navy. They have people in Washington who follow your expertise and handle assignments and I called my detailer and volunteered. Filled out the paperwork that afternoon. Early in the morning, I had orders to leave before my commanding officer had even seen my paperwork. I guess I'd hit it just right and they were trying to get people over to Vietnam. So I left the next day, went to San Diego for training and then got to Da Nang, Vietnam in 65 early on when they were just starting the buildup. There were no planes in Da Nang for the Navy. They had planes obviously, but they were Air Force and Army planes. So. I tried to get assigned to a combat area because uh, Da Nang was uh, kind of an administrative area for the Navy. So I talked the Army into letting me fly with them uh, as a forward air controller. With a job of calling in airstrikes against the enemy. 
And it was great fun. It was a little L-19, which is like a Piper Cub almost, little small light plane. We flew basically the area of i -Corps. You'd spot enemy activity. You had to get them to fire on you first to be able to call in an airstrike. So you'd circle lower and lower until they'd fire on you, and then you could call in naval gunfire or aircraft to strike them. The, the rules of engagement were insane because sometimes you then, after they fired on you, you had to then get permission from the American command for the Corps, the I-Corps area, and the Vietnamese command for the I-Corps areas. Well, sometimes it would take an hour to get permission to return fire. Sometimes it took 24 hours. I remember we came across at one point a unit of a North Vietnamese military of a battalion level size. They fired on us. We waited hours to get permission to return fire. By the time the permission came through, they'd gone off into the jungle. The rules that McNamara had set down for our engagement in Vietnam guaranteed that we would lose. Uh, he did such disservice for Americans and the Vietnamese. And uh, I think McNamara to this day bears responsibility for the loss of freedom for the South Vietnamese. Just insanity. We should never ever get involved in a conflict like that again where we don't have a determination to win. One of the things that, that most people don't understand is that first year in 65, the North Vietnamese murdered over 40,000 local officials in South Vietnam. I remember the Kennedys talking about how Teddy Kennedy, I think, in the Senate at the time was saying that we shouldn't support South Vietnam because they don't have a viable democracy. Well, what had happened is, if you think about it, it's like taking California and murdering every county commissioner, every board of supervisors, every city councilman, every legislator, every governor, every mayor, every local official in California. And if you do that, no, you don't have a viable democracy. People are afraid to run for office because they get killed. That's what happened in South Vietnam. But I found the, the training in the Navy uh, to be the best MBA program ever offered in the country. Harvard MBA doesn't have anything on the Navy. It's much better. It was a total change from uh, college. In college, you kind of train to learn by excuses. If you're not ready for an exam, you invent an excuse to avoid the midterm. You know, universities are empathetic with the kids and, and want to help them out. And, but you kind of get trained that if you don't get something done, you can get by with an excuse for a while. All of a sudden, you were in an atmosphere where there was no excuse. You either succeeded or failed. I mean, for example, in the Navy, if your ship ever goes aground or has a collision, your career's over. It doesn't matter if it wasn't your fault. It doesn't matter if someone that you didn't see had made a mistake on the bridge. And it's a culture that says you have to perform, 
period, and there's no excuses for not doing it. And so what it does is it fosters an attitude where you go out of your way to make sure you accomplish your mission. Giving things a good try isn't good enough. And if you think about life, that's the way life is. Giving an, an effort a good try isn't adequate. You've got to succeed, and it's up to you. And the sooner you realize that in life, the better off you're going to be. Because a lot of us live our lives based on finding excuses for our failures in life. Maybe it's a way we protect our own ego. It was a wonderful lesson for life and uh, helped you understand how the world works. Hank also learned some of the bad ways that the world works. It was the first introduction I'd had to a bias in the press that astounded me. Um, let me give you an example. When I would come back from a mission, I would take my photos to, there was a Marine Corps uh, photo analysis shop in Da Nang, and I'd take my, uh, the photos I'd taken uh, of enemy activity to there to be developed. Obviously, they'd share them with the command. On one of the visits, just across the street, they had an open sewer in Da Nang where all the sewage kind of went down the side of the street like a gutter, only, uh, only a bigger thing. And uh, a Vietnamese boy had fallen into this open sewer line and was drowning. One of the Marines jumped up, ran over and dove in to all of this sewage and saved the little boy's life. The press, the, the press corps had a, uh, a setup there because they also used the facility to develop their photos. All of the press just sat there. None of them reported on the event. None of them took a picture of it. None of them interviewed the Marine that had saved this little boy's life. None of them interviewed the little boy. It was a total non-event. I was shocked by that. How could an event like that not be news? And yet, what was obvious is the reporters were there to only report what was bad about our time in Vietnam, not to report what was going on. I was shocked from that. Obviously, there were a lot of instances after that that confirmed that was the view of the press. But uh, at the time, it was a shock to me that that people in the press could be so biased. I see the people who volunteered to serve in Vietnam and see their service degraded, people spitting on them when they came home. And I find it strange that people who enjoy the freedoms that they defended are so willing to degrade the people who sacrificed for them. Perhaps it's a fact that we haven't told the story of America's heritage or the American sacrifices. And you've been listening to Hank Brown and his military service, the stories about it. He got more out of it and learned more about leadership and so much more than he would have having gone to, let us say, Harvard for an MBA. And he's right about that last point about storytelling. And indeed, it's what we do here every day, is try and tell the story of America to Americans. 
It's really that simple. And with Americans, because so many of our stories are from ordinary folks, or let's just say not celebrities and singers and actors, and the usual folks who comment. And a lot of these journalists today, they're just celebrities too with their point of view, but it's not story. And so that's what we do here every day. And we try and tell the good stories. And we also like to tell the historical context of when and why and how things happen too. Because to not know a context and the story is to know just about nothing. Hank Brown's story, a remarkable life here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And if you have a story to tell us, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we've got a well of a tale to bring you right now. This story brings the elements of nature and explosives together in a way that only our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, can explain. This infamous tale of an exploding well just happened to occur in his home state of Oregon. Here's Jesse. On November 9th, 1970, a 45-foot-long, 8-ton sperm whale washed ashore on the central Oregon coast, just outside the town of Florence. After all these years, it's amazing that this thing has come back to life again. But every once in a while, it pops up. It's an aroma that still lingers. It was one of the worst smells I've ever encountered. Words cannot describe the smell. It was in my nostrils for a solid week. The whale carcass remained rotting on the beach for over a week, and nobody knew what to do about it. It was too big to bury, it stunk too much to cut into smaller pieces, and burning it was out of the question. At the time, Oregon beaches were under the jurisdiction of the state's highway division, which, after consulting with the United States Navy, decided to remove the whale using dynamite. George Thornton was the engineer in charge of the operation. Well, I'm confident that it'll work. The only thing is we're not sure just exactly how much uh, explosives it'll take to disintegrate this things so the scavengers, seagulls and crabs and whatnot can clean it up. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left and uh, we may have to do some other cleanup, possibly set another charge. Thornton was chosen to remove the whale carcass because his supervisor had gone hunting that day. A charge of half a ton of dynamite was selected. As word spread across town, crowds began to gather. I'm thinking we got big trouble here. 20 cases of dynamite. Walter Umenhofer, a military veteran with explosives training, happened to be in the crowd. He warned the crew that the 20 cases of dynamite was an overkill. 20 sticks would have sufficed. But his advice went unheeded. 
This guy says, anyhow, he says, I'm going to have everybody up there on the top of those dunes, far away. And I says, yeah, and I'm going to be the furthest SOB down that way. They made a big spectacle of, of, of waving their hats, their hard hats in the air, and we're clear everybody away and all this, all clear. The dynamite was buried under the whale on the leeward side so that most of the mammal would be blown towards the sea. The crowds of people that had come to see the whale be blown to bits were pushed back a quarter of a mile to safety. The dynamite was detonated at 3.45 p.m. Chunks of rotten whale blubber raining down on the spectators. Walter Umenhofer saw it all happen. And they touched that sucker off, and let me tell you, that thing went up and it was the biggest mushroom cloud you ever seen. And it was red and white and black, and it was nothing but guts and blood and gunk. Carried by strong coastal winds, a cloud of putrid whale fluids moved inland. So everybody all of a sudden start realizing that, oh my God, here it comes. In this mist, we were covered, we were permeated with redness and the smell. Those who witnessed the explosion agree that the next few moments seemed to last forever. It soon became apparent that what should have been little pieces of whale turned out to be big ones. And this stuff starts hitting the ground. Boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden you realize, my God, I could be killed by whale blubber here. And I'm watching this one piece. There's a big piece up there. And it's kind of flubbering and floating around. And we ran. We literally ran. And it just absolutely stopped. And it came flat down and kapow. Right on top of Walter Amenhofer's 1969 Oldsmobile. It was a neat car. I just got it from Dunham's, and it was a Regency. And, and like I say, the funny thing about their 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 slogan is it was a whale of a deal. Well, I got a hell of a whale of a deal. <laughs> Within two days, the state of Oregon wrote Walter a check for the full retail value of his car. The blast blasted blubber beyond all believable bounds, yet only some of the whale was disintegrated. The majority of the whale carcass remained on the beach for the Oregon Highway Division to clean up. Due to damage that was caused to local property, whales that are found beached in Oregon are now buried where they're found. And you may be wondering what happened to the man who decided it was a good idea to use 1,000 pounds of dynamite to blow up the beached whale. George Thornton. Is there any chance it might be more than a one-day job? Uh, if there's any large chunks left. In his official report back in 1970, he declared the operation a success, which helps to explain what happened to his career just six months later. He got promoted. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job, as always, to Jesse Edwards, who always manages to find these quirky and yet ultimately American stories. And I just loved hearing the voices and the sound effects. My goodness, I just keep thinking about the smell. 
And as always, you can send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org if you've heard of a quirky one like this or you've just got a personal one that you'd love for us to tell. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Exploding Well of Florence, Oregon. That story here on Our American Story. stories and now another powerful story from Horst Schultz, the German immigrant who was laughed at for wanting to work at a hotel. All of his friends and family thought it would be better to be an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor. But he went on to co-found the Rich Carlton. Horst is the author of Excellence Wins, a no-nonsense guide to becoming the best in a world of compromise, and his Rich Carlton pursued and achieved excellence. They're the only hotel company to win the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award, and they won it twice, which only one other company in any industry has ever done. Take it away, Horst. We were voted number one hotel company in America. We only had six hotels at the time. And it was, what did we do? What did we do? We, we, we gave each other a high five, and we drank some champagne, and we said, number one in America. Yeah, right. And the next morning, it so happens, the next morning I had an unusual amount of guest complaints that came in by mail. And that evening I had dinner with a, with a very fine gentleman of Millican Carpet, Mr. Roger Millican, all that gentleman at the time. And he said, congratulations, Horst, best hotel company in America. And I said, frankly, I read my mail this morning. Maybe we're the best, but we're the best of a lousy lot, but, but we're not good because we have a lot of complaint. He said, ah, I know, I'll, I'll, let me help you. You should study the Baltridge criteria and study what the Baltridge criteria is. Now, he set me up to meet in the commerce department with the head of the Baltridge criteria. It happens to be 11.30 in the morning. And at noon, the gentleman said, do you have time for lunch? I said, okay. He kept on explaining it. And I slowly started to understand what it meant. He used the word continuous improvement. And that excited me. Yes, I want to continuously improve. By the way, a few years later, I met him in a reception. He said, do you know why I invited you for lunch? I said, no. He said, because I felt sorry for you. You didn't understand the word I was telling you. And guess what? He was right. But during lunch, I started to understand continuous improvement. And we started to apply continuous improvement in the company. You may know we won the Polish Award twice, which nobody had. No service company even comes close to, even till today. Continuous improvement was part of it. Continuous improvement means you eliminate mistakes permanently. And if I eliminate a mistake permanently, that means it will never, ever happen again. I now improved my product and lowered my cost. Wow. Now that is called 
not cost-cutting, but efficiency. So I started to learn that when we started to apply that. An example was room service in Bucket Ritz-Carlton in Atlanta. I happened to run that hotel that was our first Ritz-Carlton. I managed it myself. I was in charge of operations. I had only one operation. It opened in January 1984. Now, the number one complaint in that hotel was slow room service. So what did I do at the time? I called the room service manager and said, what don't you understand? Be sure that never happens again. And we can just assume and I guarantee I'm right. He hired more Vedas, which created more complexity, which made other Vedas quit because they didn't make enough money anymore because they had to share their room service orders. And then we had to hire no ones and, and it was a total turnover. And guess what? Slow room service was still the number one complaint in the hotel. So what I, I kept on talking to the managers, even the managers quit because I gave real pressure. But, uh, but that was before I knew continuous improvement and the Polish criteria. In the meantime, I was not in the hotel anymore. I was in the, we had a number of hotels, I was in the corporate office. Mind you, three or four years had gone by and it was still the number one complaint. But now we, we worked on identifying root cause, continuous improvement. So what you do when you identify the root cause? In this case, we created a team with the people connected to the process, room service. That meant the room service order taker, a busboy, a waiter, and a cook. It had to be there, didn't it? So they followed the process. Order comes in, everything works fine, until they came to the elevator. And there was the problem. Sometimes in the morning when the rush comes in, everybody comes to work, the service elevator, and all the room service orders happen, everything happens right there. They had to wait up to 15 minutes for the room service elevator. So they became, they were sometimes 10 minutes late. The order was, we promised for a half an hour, it was 40 minutes. The gentleman was waiting, they had to go to a meeting, they were upset, the guest. So in this moment, who is connected to the process? The, the engineer, because there's elevator. So the chief engineer was invited into the process analysis. Why? They, they measured everything, they functioned well. In fact, they called in Otis, they measured everything, everything's functioned well. It should take three minutes round trip or less, whatever it was not 15 minutes waiting in one place. So the room service waiter took a chair and sat in the elevator to see what happens. They come into the fourth floor and a houseman, a houseman supplied the maids with soaps, shampoos, linen and so on. Comes into the elevator, goes to the sixth floor, blocks open the door, goes out and comes back with, his, with an armful of linen. He goes to the 10th floor and he's doing the same thing. Now he leaves. Now another houseman come in and does the same thing. And he said, so who is involved now? And now housekeeping is involved in the process. Why is this happening? And the housekeeper said, well, it's very simple. We have a problem in a shortage of linen. Any hotel should have tree sets. 
the hotel that only had two sets. One should be on a bed, one is being washed, and one is in traffic. Well, we had only two sets. Why? Well, laundry. Laundry gets involved now. Why don't we have only two sets in linen? And the laundry manager, Randy, I never forget him, who was there from before opening, I've opened the hotel with him. He said, we only have two sets, this is very simple, and we only replace what wears out on the two sets from the beginning. Well, why? Well, before we opened the hotel, we had a money problem, budget problem, and Mr. Schulze, which happens to be me, cut out one set of linen. Here, for years, we have complaints. I gave angry lessons to room service managers and food and beverage managers, yet it was my fault that we had slow room service. We changed, we added one set of linen, of course, immediately, and, and room service, slow room service complaints went down by over 70%. And, and, and we have many, 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 many examples of that. When, whenever we have a problem that repeats, we create teams, we call them tiger teams, that we used to, I'm still working in my mind, we call them tiger teams that done work to find the root cause. And by the way, the average is five steps away. That is where the root cause is. Not, and what do we attack? We attack the problem right there. Management attack, attacks the problem right there. Why do you do it? Why, why? It isn't there. It is five steps away. That's the average. That's statistically the average. Now, sometimes it's right there, but sometimes it lies eight steps away or whatever. So statistically, the average, the, the reason, the root cause, when if, if, we, if we just correct it right there, it will happen again and again and again and again until you eliminate the root cause. And that's, of course, we learned with the Baltus criteria. And finally, well, he'd learned his lesson. The guy who made these decisions was responsible for the problem. He'd been yelling at the wrong people, misidentifying the root cause, got at the root cause, got at the teams, got down to the, the step before the step before the step, the thing that led to the thing that led to the thing that led to the thing. And there you have it, a terrific storyteller, a terrific, terrific teacher in the end, and a diagnostician trying to figure out what the heck's really going on rather than just screaming and yelling at people. And it's a hard thing to do in our lives because things seem obvious, but they're not. You're listening to Horst Schultz, and he's the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton and author of Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a world of compromise. And by the way, his life story, our hour on horse, is one of our favorites. Deciding to get into the hotel business, growing up in a small town that didn't have a hotel, and with German parents who would have preferred that he be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. But a hotel guy? Ugh. And he did it anyway, and did it at the highest level possible. Go to Our American Network and hear that story. Again, it's one of our favorites, and a classic immigrant story as well. Horst Schultz, his many stories, here on Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And today we're talking to Eric Motley, and we have talked to Eric before and about his life in a place called Madison Park, the first plantation ever bought by former slaves, and Eric was raised by the people in that community. His book, Madison Park, is a must-read. I urge you to go to Amazon and the usual suspects and buy it. Eric, in your book, Madison Park, A Place of Hope, you talk about a moment when your dad handed you a Life magazine containing one of the most powerful essays of the 20th century. It was Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, and he asks you to read it. Would you tell us what that experience was like? That remains a powerful moment. I had never read that letter before. I had not even known of that letter. My grandfather had kept that magazine all those years because that letter spoke to him. I had recited earlier a beautiful passage from that letter. We're all a part of an inescapable network of mutuality. We're tied in a single garment of destiny. I think there are three great works of American polity. The Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, and I would say that if you had to name a third, it would be Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. I was packing up to go off to Birmingham, and my grandfather wanted me to go knowing that I was going to a place where a very special man had written a very important letter to America, to humanity. And as we sat on the back porch and I read, I could see my grandfather, who would oftentimes look off in the distant air, not making eye contact. But on this occasion, he made eye contact with me. And uh, at the end of that experience, my grandfather said to me, you know, you should visit that jail. You should visit that jail. The letter represented much more than words. It represented the power of words and how we use language to make our cases and how we use language to undergird our beliefs. <clears throat> Actions are so important, but language is so important. And in many ways, my grandfather was teaching me or underscoring the importance of being able to understand and to use language in a way that it would be effective. And that years later, people could turn to thoughts and, and to use those thoughts um, to support their own beliefs and their own ideas in this particular case about human progress. What is so profoundly interesting to me is that Martin Luther King was in his jail cell. He was a preacher, so of course he grew up realizing the richness of rhetoric and the power of words and language. But here in this jail cell, with no paper, and a janitor at the jail came over and gave him a newspaper and gave him a pencil, and he was able to compose this beautiful work of language, this beautiful essay with no book, with no Google at his disposal, 
with no resources except his own capacity of memory. And in this letter, he quotes St. Augustine, St. Anselm, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He quotes Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, Thomas Jefferson, Adam Smith, all of the great thinkers that have woven ideas together, underscoring why we believe what we believe, why we believe that we were created by some higher order, why we believe that there are natural laws and civil laws, why do we believe in the power of community and togetherness. And these are very strong ideas, and he pinned them together in such a way that the whole of the fabric became reinforced with the strength of ideas. And I've always thought that it's really the manifesto of the liberal arts education, that if you get a very good liberal arts education, you're able to really kind of bring thoughts together in a way uh, that supports you in all seasons of life and evolution. My grandmother uh, insisted when I would sing in the choir that I would commit to memory all of the hymns, all five stanzas of the hymns. Guide me, O thy great Jehovah, he leadeth me. This is my Father's world, come my fount. Blessed assurance, what a friend we have in Jesus. Whatever the song was, that I would learn all. Because she felt that it's, it's one thing to say that you've committed something to mind. It's another thing to say you've committed it to heart. And in moments of life, I will find myself reciting these wonderful words that have come to mean something much more than just lyrics. But they've come to make a deep impression in my heart, in my way of thinking, in my way of, of being and realizing. Uh, and, and that is both the power of memory, but it's also the power of things making impressions on your heart. And it is so true. And I wanted to read to you from Letters from a Birmingham Jail is I concur that this is one of the most important documents in American history, right up there with the Gettysburg Address and the Declaration of Independence. And this is what I remember most when I read it. And it struck me and struck a chord that was deep. And by the way, he was writing this letter to Christian pastors, pastors who were white, who were saying, Martin, you're right, but slow down. Why so fast? And so he writes this. He says, perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering, as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky 
and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who asks, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes the N-word, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the proper respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. And that is tough to rebut. And then he reaches for the higher angels, of course, by quoting these great men, by calling for nonviolent protests, and calling for all Americans to be treated equally. Read it with the family. It applies to everything that's happening today. And whatever and wherever you sit, reading this beautiful piece of art and remembering how Martin Luther King, the Reverend Martin Luther King, conducted himself, always a God guy, to the end. Eric Motley's story, in the end, the story of writing and the story of the power of words and the power of love, here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and this next one well we always think of Hillsdale College when we tell any stories about American history and Hillsdale is as fine a place as any in this country to send a young person to learn about the country about western civ about all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses go to hillsdale.edu that's hillsdale.edu Few stories are as compelling, as complex, and as mystifying as that of Benedict Arnold. After all, it's a story ripe with moral ambiguity. He was both the greatest of heroes and the darkest of villains. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Benedict Arnold is hands down America's most infamous turncoat. He has been dead for over 200 years, and his name is still shorthand for traitor as we've seen exemplified in movies like Grumpier Old Men. You traitor, you Benedict Arnold! In spite of his ultimate deception, Benedict Arnold remains one of the most gifted generals America has ever known. Ironically, if it had not been for his prowess and military genius, America might never have been victorious in the Revolutionary War. In May of 1775, Arnold led an attack on the remote British outpost at Fort Ticonderoga. Quick-tempered and strong-willed, Arnold joined forces and immediately clashed with Ethan Allen, the leader of a small militia of frontiersmen known as the Green Mountain Boys. The fort is captured thanks mostly to Benedict Arnold that forces the British to abandon Boston. Both Allen and Arnold 
wrote extensive reports about the events to the colonial committees. But they only accepted Allen's glorified version that barely mentions Arnold. This would be the beginning of a pattern in Arnold's military career that would repeat itself. Arnold is later given the impossible task of defending New York's Lake Champlain from attack. He constructs the first American naval fleet of 15 small war vessels to engage the British at Valcour Island in October of 1776. Although he was not victorious, his efforts not only established the American Navy, but severely delayed the advancement of the world's finest navy into American territory, allowing Washington's army time to rebuild and resupply. In spite of his aggressive and heroic achievements, the Continental Congress refused to recognize Arnold, and he was passed over for promotion in favor of junior officers with far less military achievement. George Washington, who was Arnold's close friend and one of the few men who came to his defense, took issue with the Continental Congress's decision, rebuking them for making political rather than strategic military promotions. Here's Washington biographer Adrian Harrison. Washington appreciates the personal sacrifice that Arnold made and the leadership that he used. He sees Arnold's pain, and Washington has really no love for the Continental Congress either. They're not doing a great job supplying him. In September of 1777, Arnold was placed under the command of Horatio Gates at Saratoga in upstate New York. Gates, while never coming within a mile of the fighting, held Arnold back confining him to his tent and refused reinforcements. Defying Gates' orders, Arnold seized a horse and rallied the Americans to victory and took a bullet to the leg and barely survived after being crushed by his own horse. However, it is this shot that will change the course of history and nearly alter the course of independence. Here's Arnold biographer Willard Randall. When the battle was over, his second-in-command said, Sir, where are you hit? And Arnold said, It's my leg. I wish it had been my heart. And I do, too. I wish it had been his heart, because if he had died at that moment, he would have been the great hero of the Revolution. The battles of Saratoga are considered by many historians to be one of the top 15 most decisive battles in world history because it becomes the impetus for France to join the Americans against Britain, reinvigorating Washington's Continental Army and providing much-needed supplies and support, saving the revolution once again. Here's historian Paul Hutton. Carried from the battlefield, terribly wounded, Arnold was immediately placed under arrest for having disobeyed orders. But the day is won. It's clear to everyone on the battlefield that Benedict Arnold has won the day. Clear to everyone except Horatio Gates. He denies Arnold credit. He accepts credit for America's greatest victory. General Washington steps in and entrusts the newly reclaimed city of Philadelphia to Arnold. He is now the city's military governor. Away from the battlefield, Arnold takes full advantage of his position, 
living opulently while using and abusing his position running shady business deals in a lively black market. He has served, he has been wounded severely, and so he starts as a governor to take what he thinks is his due. It is here in April 1779 where the 38-year-old Arnold meets and marries a beautiful, flirtatious, and intense 18-year-old from a very wealthy loyalist family. Her name is Peggy Shippen. Here's Arnold historian William Stanley. Arnold was to the British what Rama was to the English, what Patton was to the German. In other words, a general who could defeat them. The British wanted Arnold out of there. Without Arnold, they'd win. But Arnold's shady side deals are exposed by the press. Once again, Arnold faces a slight against his honor. With an impending court-martial and a public rebuke from General Washington, Arnold and his young bride begin exploring options for disaffection. Despite his reprimand, Washington wants to give his brilliant general a field position of honor. But after Arnold suspiciously lobbies strongly for a non-field position at West Point, in the fall of 1780, Washington makes him the commander of the strategic American stronghold known as the Key to the Continent, a fort on the front lines that bears his own name, Fort Arnold. West Point becomes Arnold's key negotiating resource. Many historians claim he even conspired to turn over General George Washington himself. Here's former superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Lieutenant General Dave Palmer. West Point was not just a strategic spot. West Point was the strategic spot in the American Revolution. Both sides, British and Americans, agreed on one thing that if the British could ever capture the line of the Hudson, they would probably win the war. It doesn't take long for Arnold's secret plot to be unearthed, causing him to flee West Point for a British warship stationed on the Hudson. Ironically, at this same hour, General Washington was en route to West Point to feast with his trusted friend. Arnold's betrayal is so unexpected and cuts General Washington so deeply that after failing to capture Benedict Arnold, Washington proclaimed, Arnold has betrayed me. Whom can we trust now? Safely behind British lines, Benedict Arnold receives his 20,000 pounds ransom payment and a commission as Brigadier General of 1,600 troops in His Majesty's Army. Benjamin Franklin remarked, Judas sold only one man, Arnold, three million. Benedict Arnold's treason united the 13 colonies and increased their enlistments and re-enlistments in ways that neither he nor the British could have ever foreseen. Benedict Arnold died in London in 1801 at the age of 60, a spiritually, financially, and emotionally broken man. There's a monument on the battlefield at Saratoga National Park, the site of his greatest victory, 
a boot statue commemorating the permanent wounds General Benedict Arnold sustained with the inscription, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. The monument bears no name, and there's good reason. Because there is a law in America passed by the Congress that you can neither chisel the name Benedict Arnold or mold it in metal. So, I mean, they took this guy right off the face of the earth. Benedict Arnold's betrayal is profound. At the same time, America would have never emerged successfully from the Revolutionary War had it not been for his innovative leadership. Here's former military historian at West Point, Major John Hall. Were it not for his treason, he would almost undoubtedly be one of the most celebrated American commanders of all of the American Revolution. West Point to this day would probably still be called Fort Arnold rather than West Point. In the years following his death, Arnold's wife Peggy spent her time settling all of his debts, except the biggest one of all, to America, which could never be paid. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler and to all the supporters and contributors to this show. Without their help, this isn't possible. And thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College for all the work that they do. Benedict Arnold's story, a rich, complicated, and ultimately tragic one, here on Our American Stories.